So here we are, a week away from Christmas, and we will gather, as uh, we mentioned, for two services uh, next Sunday. And of course, we will be focusing on the theme of Christmas, but we wanted to give some time to that same theme today. And so we're looking at this famous passage here, this wonderful prophecy about the child that is to be born, or from that point, of course, as Isaiah is talking about the future, the child that would be born, the son that would be given. And if you noticed in the reading, in those earlier verses, there's a couple of uh, mentions of joy. And so in the end, this whole prophecy is really about the bringing about of joy. And we, we sang just here before uh, we, we entered into this portion of the service. We sang that, that great and well-known Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And so that, that's what we want to talk about today. And we want to just take the prophecy here, specifically verse 6 and also maybe uh, verse 7, and just look at the application of it because it has uh, application that is um, very far-reaching. It's application that reaches out into eternity and it's universal, but it also has uh, more personal application. And so we want to look at both things. But but the thing that I want you to just think about for a moment as we as we uh, launch into this is how what. Uh, the Lord is telling us through Isaiah the prophet is that all of our hopes and aspirations are are really centered around a person. You know, today we think in terms of uh, political principles, that's how we're going to solve problems or, uh, you know, a progressive vision for the future, or we think about, uh, you know, civilization continuing to advance and that's how we're going to uh, attain peace and prosperity, uh, but the the Bible says that all of these things are going to happen because a person is going to implement these things, and yet that person is not just a, a mere person like like we are. That person is um, the child that was born, the son that is given. That person is none other than God Himself, who becomes a man, and of course that's the great. Uh, that's the great story of Christmas. But think about this. Think about the multitudes of people in the world who, as they, as they think about, you know, the future, as they, they live with, with hope for uh, better days ahead, how many people connect that to uh, an actual person? How many people even know that the Bible tells us that such a person would come into the world and and do this. I I would venture to say that not only do most people not know this, but I would even say that that many of the people who call themselves Christians, because there there are some 2 billion or so people on the planet who uh, refer to themselves as Christians, 
But yet I think it's a very small number, even among those who call themselves Christians, who even realize that this is the great promise of Scripture. That the Savior, that the the child that was born in Bethlehem, the son that was given there upon the cross at Calvary, is also the one who is going to ultimately establish the kingdom. And the song that we sang, Joy to the World, if if you ever really pause and think about the words, you realize that even though we, we sing that as a Christmas song, it's, it's not necessarily a Christmas song. It's really a song about the future when the kingdom is established. There's no mention of a baby in a manger. There's no mention of the Virgin Mary. There's, there's none of those references are in that song, but, but they're all talking about joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Uh, let every heart prepare a room. Let heaven and nature sing. That's all about the future. But that, of course, is where the, the child who is born, the son who is given, that's where everything is leading. And so we want to we look out to the future where it's leading. But then, as I said, we also want to realize that in the meantime, until we get to the future, which... Um, will ultimately come. We don't know when, but until we get there, there's, there's a personal application of this. And the message is for us individually, not only for the world collectively. And all of this, all of these uh, promises of, of righteousness and peace and a world free from injustice and a world free from from war and, and tyranny and hostilities, all of that is going to come about through this child that was born, the son that was given. And here the prophet then tells us who the child is and says that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Now, a writer said this. He said that uh, compound names are used because the unique dignity of this deliverer cannot be covered by single names. So we have wonderful counselor, not just counselor. We have mighty God. We have the father of the ages, the prince of peace and so forth. And, and then he goes on and he says, he says, and not, not only is, or there, there's not just the one name given, but there are four names given because one name is not sufficient to comprehend the multitude of blessings that the Savior brings or the manifold works that he successfully achieves. And so here is this, this great, great prophecy. And this prophecy, just to set it in its context historically, this prophecy was given in a very dark time in the history of the nation. You can kind of see that in the verses that we previously read. It's talking about war and it's talking about bloodshed and those kinds of things and how all of that is going to be done away with. And the, the abolishing of that is is connected to the child that is born and the son that is given. So let's look at each of the names that are given and let's look at them in the bigger picture, the relation to the, uh, to the world itself. 
kind of looking at it from the universal perspective, and then we'll come back and look at it more specifically. So we're talking about the one who's going to come, who's going to sit upon the throne, who's going to have that place of authority, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor because of the perfect plan that he will implement that will bring about universal and everlasting righteousness, peace, and prosperity. And so indeed, it will be that the the nations of the world will look to Jesus sitting upon the throne of David and say he is the wonderful counselor. Look what, what he has brought about through his wisdom. You know, if you think in terms of, of human history, uh, you know, we, we have just a variety of, of attempts to bring the world into subjection to particular you know, kings or governments or whatever the case might be. And, and most of the time, there's the, the idea that somehow this uh, period of peace and prosperity is going to result if we can just you know, bring this person to power or if we can just get this philosophy, uh, everybody to embrace this. But, of course, we know that that never happens. And the moment we think that we're kind of even inching close to that, something changes and then we're, we're sort of back to square one. I saw this week, and maybe you saw this as well, you know, there are certain people because of the result of the election who are now talking about, you know, we're living in a world where there's no hope. Uh, you know, we had hope uh, previously, but now the hope is sort of, uh, you know, vanished. And, you know, thank God that that is not the case. You know, if our hope is in men, any men, If our hope is in a person that is just a mere sinful human being like all of us are, then we are um, to be greatly pitied. Our hope is in the child that was born, the son that was given, who is the wonderful counselor. And so he will bring about what man has longed for. And we will no longer look to a Congress or to a parliament or to uh, any kind of political body, the UN or the US or the EU or whatever the case might be. We will just look to the one who sits upon the throne of David. And as we read there of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then here's the great promise. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to do this. And this is the hope that, that we have. This is the, you know, the larger uh, long-term hope that we who have put our faith in Christ, this is the hope that we have. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, remember that this, this last word here at the end of verse 7 is a promise for this prophecy. Don't forget that, that part of the prophecy has already been fulfilled. There was a child that was born. There was a son that was given. There's uh, Bethlehem and there's Calvary. And so those are in the past. Those have already been fulfilled. 
And so we're just now waiting for the government to be upon his shoulders. And just as sure as God brought the first aspect of the prophecy to pass, we can rest assured that he will bring the second aspect of the prophecy to pass. And so he will be called Wonderful Counselor. But secondly, he will be called the Mighty God. And he will be called the Mighty God Again, I mean, this is this is his title, but it's something that the the picture is. It's something that we will acknowledge. It's something that the the people will refer to him as because he will subdue all of man's enemies. He will bring an end to war. He will bring an end to all of the conflicts that have plagued us and. He is able to do that because he has the power to do it. You know, the subduing of evil is no minor task, is it? It's, it's amazing how evil is so powerful and how it, it is so hard to uh, subdue evil. And you think of the different times um, in, in history where I always, I always marvel at this. When I think, you know, how does one man rise to such power where he controls an entire nation, perhaps, and, and, and has them living under his absolute authority? And often, most of the time, when that's the case, it's an evil, oppressive uh, rule. And in history, we know in order to break that evil and that oppressive rule, that great force has to be exercised. And if you think back in history to maybe the Second World War, that period there, you know, you know the forces that had to be marshaled against the, the Nazi war machine and the death and destruction that they left in their wake, but all of the, the, the death that had to... The, the sacrifices that had to be made in order to stop that. So when you, th- you think of evil and the power of evil, I read this week that um, I think it was about 5,000 uh, shootings occurred in Chicago this past year and several hundred people died as a result of it. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, well, don't they have a police force in Chicago? Don't they have any way to... Uh, push back or, or to subdue this kind of evil. But, but the, the point is, evil is powerful. That's why no one less than the mighty God can subdue the evil. And the child that is born, the son that is given, he is the mighty God. So he uh, is able to accomplish the task of, of subduing evil because he brings omnipotence to the problem. He brings all power to the problem. And just so you know, the word mighty, translated uh, mighty, uh, is the Hebrew word gibor, which speaks of um, a mighty warrior. So the picture here is of a conqueror, that Christ is the one who has conquered. He has subdued God's enemies. He's subdued the enemies of his people. And so he is the mighty God. And then he is the everlasting father or he is the father of the ages. 
And the father of the ages is really a better way to understand it than the everlasting father. Because when we hear everlasting father, we automatically get confused between, well, wait, I thought Jesus was the son and there was the father. And how come Jesus is being called the father and not the son? But the problem is it's not really the best translation. So it's really the the idea is that he is the father of the ages or he is the father of the coming age or he is the one who will rule over the coming age like a loving father. And so the picture, I mean, on the one hand, you've got the, the wonderful counselor, you've got all of that wisdom, the mighty God, you've got all of that power. But now in the picture of the father of eternity or the father of the coming age, you have the picture of loving paternal concern for those that have been committed to his charge. And this, to me, is such a beautiful part of the picture because it's a revelation of the heart with which he will govern the world. He will govern with compassion, mercy, and tenderness. Where has there ever been a ruler in history like that? Again, most people that have have ruled have ruled with an iron fist and been oppressors. Uh, Some have just been sort of disconnected and aloof. You could find a few times in history where there might have been sort of a benevolent uh, kind of a ruler, but they were few and far between. And even for those that had uh, a heart of benevolence toward their people, they had limitations as to what they could do to help their people. But Jesus has none of those things. He has no limitations. He has all power. But coupled with that power, he has a heart of compassion and tenderness. And we could take the words of Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, and apply them to him in this situation. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows their frame. He remembers they are dust. And this will be the heart and the attitude with which he will rule over the world. And then fourthly and finally... He is referred to here as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And this is the great longing, isn't it? And, and you know, here's the irony. On the one hand, we, we see that there's a longing for peace. We, and we have the peace accords. We have the peace uh, treaties. We, you know, all, all of these things that even in our own uh, lifetime, we, we've heard about peace and so forth. But... The longing for peace is, it seems that it is often, um, it's, it's um, overpowered by, uh, by the human lust for power. So here, here's the irony. On the one hand, we're saying we, we want peace, but then power just sort of takes over. And, and we end up not having peace. And this has been the history of the world. Man has never been able to usher in any time of peace. You know, I went this uh, past week and I saw this film, um, Hacksaw Ridge. Maybe some of you saw that. It's a Mel Gibson film. And it's a true story of a, of a young man in the, in the Second World War who was, um, because of his faith as a Seventh-day Adventist, he did not want to engage in combat he actually refused but he wasn't a uh, a conscientious objector in the sense that he didn't want to go into the military he signed up to go into the military 
in, because he wanted to go in as a medic. He wanted to save lives. And um, he refused to pick up a gun. He refused to go through the training, um, you know, in, in uh, the, the aspect of his military training where he learned to shoot and so forth. He, he just absolutely refused it. Uh, they, they, they sought to court-martial him as a result of it. And in the end, found out that he had a constitutional right, if he would so choose, to go into battle unarmed. And that's exactly what he chose to do. And so I hope no, nobody wanted to see this movie because I'm telling you the whole story right now. So <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good movie. Um, so I, I won't even tell you the end because my point is not to tell you the end. My point is to tell you that it is probably... And Mel Gibson is very good at this, as some of us know from some of his previous movies. It is probably the most realistic and authentic picture of what happens in a war zone that's ever been filmed. It is the bloodiest, goriest. It is just, in that sense, it is just absolutely horrific. And as you walk out, you know, there's that, that saying, uh, war is hell. And man, you walk out of there going, yes, war is hell. And you thank God for the relative times of peace that, that we have experienced. But of course, not everybody you know, has lived with that peace, right? I mean, there's war zones all over the world right now. And so understandably, there is that, that deep desire for peace, but it just never comes. It just eludes us, but Jesus will come and he is the Prince of Peace and he is going to establish a kingdom of peace. But you see, it's a kingdom that has a foundation of righteousness. Righteousness and peace, those two things go hand in hand. Uh, the prophet actually said that they kiss one another. And so peace is found upon righteousness and it will be the dominant feature of his reign. And some of the description in, uh, given to us in scripture are so fantastic. But this one, you, you might remember, I love this one. It says, in that day when he reigns, that they will beat their swords into plowshares. Plowshares and their uh, spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Oh, that is such a beautiful picture of peace. I can't remember the exact statistics. Somebody calculated, you know, in, in recorded history. Um, the time, the time of, of peace versus the time of conflict. And the time of peace has just been very, very brief in recorded history. But Jesus is going to come. And so the, the prophecy, as, as we've been saying, it's talking about this, the future fulfillment. The child that was born in Bethlehem, the son that was given at Calvary, is going to come back. And going to establish this kingdom of righteousness and rule as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the father of the age and the prince of peace. But there's a present fulfillment as well. And this is the this is the personal part of the Christmas message. And we cannot lose sight of the personal part of this. You know, you know, we, we're kind of living in a time where. Uh, collectivism is sort of uh, taking hold of the minds of, of a lot of people. And whenever you get a, a, 
you know, there, there's kind of these two views of, of life. I mean, there's more. But, you know, you've got sort of the collectivist view and then you've got the individualistic view. And, and both of them, if taken to the extreme, are a problem. If you see, you know, if everything is very individualistic, then, of course, you just care about yourself and you don't really care about anybody else because it's all about you. But then, on the other hand, if it's a collectivist view, then it's all about the bigger mass of people. And so the individual person is lost in the mass. And you're expendable. It's just, you know, because it's it's what's best for the, uh, you know, it's, it's like the communist idea. What's what's best for the state is what matters. It doesn't really matter what uh, what's best for you. So, you. so you've got these two philosophical extremes that people live by. And, you know, the Bible, interestingly, says that both of them are important, but it keeps both of them in the, in the right perspective so you don't lose the balance. So the individual doesn't get lost in the masses, but then the individual doesn't at the same time just become so individualistic that they forget about the collective. And so with the gospel. And with Jesus, we have both things. And we've been talking about the the collective sense of things, the universal rule of Christ. But we also want to bring it back down to the fact that, you see, God sees the masses, but he sees the individual faces in the masses. And that's what others always fail to do. But God doesn't fail to do that. You see, for God so loved the world. That's the masses. God loves everybody. But at the same time, everybody has a face. Every single person matters. And you know where we see that so clearly illustrated is in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus comes. And yes, he ministers to the masses. But you know, you often find Jesus in the gospel accounts. You often find him alone with individual people. So he wasn't just concerned about humanity at large in a general sense. He was very much concerned with the individual person. And so the message and his place as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, that has personal application as well. And so let's think about that. Personal application, wonderful counselor. God has... A plan for your life and for my life personally. God knows about you individually. God is concerned for you. Jesus said things like, God knows the number of hairs on your head. That's how concerned he is about you personally. And so he has a plan for our lives. And he is... The one who is the all wise God and he wants to give us wisdom and understanding and counsel on how to live life the way it's supposed to be lived. I wonder how many billions of dollars have been spent over the years on counseling or therapy. And it just goes to show you that people recognize they they need help. They need advice. They need the wisdom of others. But you know, God, who knows everything, 
that wonderful counselor, he wants to give us that wisdom at no cost. He wants to give us that counsel. He wants to reveal to us his plan for our lives. He wants to show us, and he does so in the pages of scripture and through his spirit. He shows us how to live. And, and to live productive lives and to live the good life. And you know, when God says, live this way, he's not saying, live this way because I don't want you to have any fun. I just want you to be miserable, so you're going to live this way, like it or not. When God says, live this way, you know why he says it? Because this is the best way to live. And when God says, don't live like this, he's not saying, don't live like this because he wants to rain on your parade. He's saying, don't live like this because this will... This will harm you. This will harm other people. In, in the long run, uh, you, you, you know, people say, oh, no, no, this is good. I need this. I want this. No, this, God's trying to hold something good back from me. Oh, no, he's not. God knows something about that that you don't know. You can't see it right now. You're blinded to the reality because of your own passion or whatever it is. But God says, don't do it. Because in the long run, it'll hurt you and others. So he gives us counsel. He shows us how to live. But remember, he does so based upon the plan that he has for our lives. God has a plan for the world. He has a plan for your life as well. And because he's the mighty God, he has all the power necessary for that plan to be worked out in our lives. And as we yield ourselves to him and as we seek his counsel, he not only gives us his word, but he gives us Power. He gives us the, the assistance of the spirit to come and to enable us to do the thing that he's wanting us to do. The thing that's going to bless us and glorify him. He's the mighty God. And he does all of this because he's the father of the ages. He does all of this in tenderness and in love and in patience. Just as a father or a mother does toward their children. And then, of course, all of this is leading us in the paths of righteousness and the paths of peace. And so as the Prince of Peace, he takes away our worries and he alleviates our fears and he calms our anxieties and he gives us a peace that passes understanding. So you see, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And let every heart prepare a room. That's the, that's the now. That's the personal part of it. And let heaven and nature sing. That's the future. That's where everything is headed. So what we end up with as we receive the child that was born and the son that was given, we end up with hope for the future. We're not in despair. You know this. You've, you've heard this before. It is true. This, there's more suicide this time of year than any other time of the year. And what does that tell you? It tells you that people are in despair. And, and why are people in despair? Well, they for just, you know, for whatever reason, they, they just look and there's no hope. They just can't see any anything positive or good that that can ever come in the future. But this truth gives us that confidence that no, there, there is a, a good future coming. 
God has a promise that he's made and he is going to keep that promise. So I've got hope for the future, but then I've also got peace for the present. Because I have the wonderful counselor to counsel me and guide me through life. I have the mighty God who is for me to subdue my enemies, the sin in my own heart, mainly. But then those other enemies, the devil and those adversaries, I I have the mighty God there to subdue that. And he does this all out of a heart of love and compassion and tenderness. And so the Christmas message is both a message for the cosmos and it's a message for the individual person. And so joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. That's now. And the question is just always back to this one simple thing. Have you prepared him room in your heart? Have you, have you opened your heart Uh, And allowed him to come in and to be the Lord of your life. Because that's where all of this becomes a reality. And, And like I said at the beginning, I wonder how many people there are who don't even know. Even though they would say they're Christians. Even though on Christmas they're going to, in some way, they're going to acknowledge the birth of Christ. But they don't even know this promise. They don't even realize that the Christ who came and was born there in Bethlehem is also going to come again and set up a kingdom. They don't realize that. But even more pertinent to the moment, they don't realize that he's present to personally bless them and to work in their lives. Make sure that's not you. Make sure that you have uh, opened your heart to receive him. And that gives... Peace for today, as the song says, and bright hope for tomorrow. That's, that's what we have in the birth of our Savior. And that's why we sing joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And that's why joy can fill our hearts as well. And, and my prayer for myself and for you for each of us is that as we we go into this week now as we you know next sunday we'll be actually there on the day and of course these are just days in the year i mean really as believers we're always celebrating the birth of jesus in a sense right we're always cel- we're celebrating the lord but but we do have this time where we can just sort of pause a little bit and think about these things and give them the attention that we might not give them as talking to um that woman that I'm married to, uh, her name is Cheryl. <laughs> I didn't forget her name. I just forgot where I was going with this. Uh, but, but we were talking this week and she's done a bunch of, um, you know, this, this time of the year, she gets a lot of invitations to speak at churches for Christmas kinds of ladies, coffees and events like that. And she was telling me how she's just been marveling how the Lord has just been giving her all of these sort of just wonderful perspectives on the birth of Jesus. And um, yesterday she was telling me about um, just the whole idea of the name. You know, they shall, you shall call his name Jesus, the angel said to Joseph, for he shall save his people from their sins. And she was just telling me how uh, 
the Lord had just kind of given her this whole message on the name of Jesus. And it was so beautiful. But all of that to say, you know, just pondering these things, thinking about them, intentionally thinking about the reality that how God became a man. And what, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for our world? And as we just think on these things, and, you know, so often I know I find myself, I'm thinking on so many other things. And sometimes the things I'm thinking about are getting me upset. Sometimes they're getting me stressed out. Sometimes I'm getting anxious over them. And then I have to stop and say, wait a second, I got to come back. And this is what I need to think about. And especially now. So my, my prayer is that we are able to do that um, in this week, and that in doing that, that joy that we sang about would really be our experience, that our hearts would be filled with joy. So, Lord, we do pray today that as we think on this wonderful passage here right before us, this glorious prophecy that has been partially fulfilled, but will be completely fulfilled in the future. Lord, we thank you that this is the future, that the future is you will sit upon the throne of David and you're going to establish your kingdom and justice and righteousness will then reign from that time forth and forevermore. And Lord, in your zeal, you're going to do that. And oh, how we thank you for that. But Lord, thank you for the, the present situation. That what will be true for the whole world in the future is true for all of those who have put their faith in you today. And so, Lord, may that be true of us. I pray if there's anyone with us today that has not yet put their personal faith in you. They have yet to bow before you, the great king, and submit to your authority. Help them, Lord, to do that very thing today. To recognize, Lord, that you were born into this world and you died upon that cross for the very purpose of becoming the Lord of our lives and blessing us with all the blessing of heaven. And may any who are not there yet, may they be there through just that simple prayer to you to receive you and lord may we go this week and just have those times those moments where we are filled with joy as we think about who you are all that you've done all that you're yet to do in the days ahead we give you praise and honor and glory and we thank you amen